Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today again with my colleagues Kirsten and Jimmy and we are continuing our series on teen adaptations, teen adaptations, whatever Jimmy's calling them, <laughs> which is teen, fil teen films inspired by classic literature. And this week we're turning to the 2010 film Easy A, which is partially inspired, I think, or thematically inspired, we were just discussing, um, by the novel The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. So I think I'm going to throw to Jimmy first. Jimmy, what did you think of Easy A? Well, I love the film. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by the film because uh, I, th I think the trailer and the poster made it seem as if I was going to be watching something uh, I don't know, kind of a little bit B-grade, a little bit silly, you know, um, and a bit of a throwback, I thought, to the, the 90s uh, teen rom-com. So I, I went into the film not having a lot of high... This is when it first came out, I should say. I, didn't, um, I did rewatch it recently again, but when it first came out, that was my reaction to it. So uh, I was very, very surprised, but I was surprised mostly actually by the intelligence of the film itself. Like it was a very, very intelligently adapted, um, not adapted, but uh, in terms of, you know, adapted for the screen, film uh, and I thought the characters were really, really well uh, rounded. I love the main character of uh, Olive Pendergast. I thought, you know, she was just such a, a plucky, you know, spunky, very intelligent girl. Um, and I love the sexual politics around it as well. I thought, you know, that was, it, it, it's a very clever way to play with some of those ideas. Uh, Rewatching it again, uh, I, I did pick up a lot more this time than I did originally because I think I went in there not expecting um, something as, I guess, uh, I don't know, deep as I thought it would be. But watching it now post um, Me Too movement is actually a really, really interesting experience. And I don't want to go into too much detail about that now because I'm, I'm sure we'll cover it in a little bit more detail then. But I think, you know, for me, it was a, it was a very clever film and a very funny film too. Um, it's, as Stephanie said, not exactly an adaptation. Um, but at the same time, I think it kind of is because it's looking thematically at some of the idea that the Scarlet Letter explores, but it's also looking at combining different texts together as well. So one of the things that I really noticed this time around was the way 80s uh, rom-com heavily influenced this film. Uh, and in fact, it's uh, a big intertextual reference throughout this film too. So for me, this film was almost like a, what, what happens when you combine the Scarlet Letter with an 80s rom-com by John Hughes, you know, melded together. And this is the kind of film you get. Uh, this very, very um, almost um, self-referential in a good way um, and very intertextual film that's, that, that's quite clever, but uh, also really, really interesting in its depiction of very unusual characters. Um, and so that's what I really liked about it. You know, I think it's a very character-focused film uh, and that was my uh, a big thing from it. Yeah, I noticed that too watching it. I rewatched it last night. I hadn't seen it for a while. And um, I, as I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is, this is definitely a rom-com that's aware it's a rom-com. <laughs> you know, it has that kind of really knowing, kind of winking. Even the way that the, the story is actually just Olive telling her story as, as, a, as a kind of video diary. It's got that kind of like, this is a construct, this is, you know, I'm putting together the construction of my story. Um, has that kind of metatextual kind of awareness to it that, that I kind of really picked up on last night that I hadn't perhaps thought about earlier um, in earlier viewings. Kirsten, what do you think of Easy A? I really like it. Um, I always struggle 
to think of something that Jimmy hasn't said um, <laughs> when asked what I think about these TV shows, um, about these movies. Um, at the risk of sounding repetitive, I also thought um, it was really funny um, and really intelligent. Um, I, I watched it, um, I remember watching it when it came out um, and I've watched it a few times since. It's one of those ones that I also um, return to sometimes, not as much as um, 10 Things Ahead About You or Clueless, but um, it's it just feels um, satisfying when you watch it, I think. It, it masquerades as um, yet another teen movie, a dumb sort of teen flick. But what it is, um, is a really intelligent, um, witty kind of banter. And I think you get that um, in the sense of, in, in Olive's character, she's so vivacious and so confident. Um, she's such a likeable person. But um, some of my favourite interactions occur in her family units with her parents. I love her parents. They're just so... Her parents are fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it just, it's really enjoyable, but I also think it handles adaptation in, in a fresh kind of way. So we've talked a lot in previous um, podcast episodes about um, the 90s and early 2000s adaptations, um, which are intelligent in the way that they adapt their um, literary texts and not always in a straight kind of way. In fact, they often do something quite different, obviously, in translating into a, um, a high school and particularly a, an American high school scenario but this one um, I think is very self-consciously playful and it's very aware of what it's doing and so I think it would be like the Scarlet Letter is um, one of those texts that I think has suffered a lot in the process of adaptation to various movie versions and this one Easy A makes a point of that you know when it when it gives a quick recap of the story it recaps what it calls the original which is actually a film version um, <laughs> And, it's, and according to um, Olive, it's not the Demi Moore version. She says, to say that one was freely adapted is a bit of an understatement, Governor. <laughs> so, you know, she's playing with the idea that adaptation is something that we critique and mm. it's something that we need to think about. And she's thinking there in terms of uh, fidelity, which we've already discussed in previous episodes, as an, an interesting but a problematic question around mm. adaptation. And I think this film basically just addresses that head on and it gets really metafictive. It just says, basically, I know I'm adapting this text and a lot of others. So let's, let's just reference everything we can think of. We're also doing a teen movie. We're kind of adapting teen movies at this point because it's become such a defined genre. Um, they recognise tropes like the cool English teacher who raps in front of the class um, and he says, you know, I'm not going to do that. It's it's part of every teen movie that you've seen. <laughs> and that's in 10 Things. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So I find this film references 10 Things quite a lot. Mm. Um, references Clueless, references basically all of the ones we've discussed so far. So I really like that it, um, the others sort of reference each other a little bit. This one just knows that in 2010, you can no longer just make a straight up teen adaptation unironically. It has mm. to be aware of what's come before it because these are such iconic films. And I think it just really intelligently handles its own heritage in that way. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of freeing the, the way that they've handled adaptation, as you said, because it's not pretending it doesn't know about the book. You know what I mean? Like, so say things like 10 Things Had About You and Clueless, as much as I love them, they have to pretend that a book such as Emma doesn't exist and a book, you know, at a play such as um, A Taming of the Shrew doesn't exist because that would break 
our sense of the of the world in which this this um, story taken is set. But here we can say, look, this is just like the Scarlet Letter, which of course it isn't really, because the Scarlet Letter is very different. But they can just use the themes of the Scarlet Letter to to think about the same sorts of things that they want to think about um, and do so. Yeah. She says like, um, you know, isn't it funny how this, the texts we study in class always seem to uncannily mirror that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that we're going through. So they, they actually call that out de deliberately. Yeah, exactly. And it, it gives them space to be funny about it. It gives them a space to be playful. They're not constrained by plot they don't have to adapt this character into that character they can just sort of take all of these ideas associated with Scarlet Letter around um, gender and sexuality and just sort of throw them up in the air and have a bit of fun with it even though there is something really serious that sort of underpins all this yeah and I think that the title actually perfectly encapsulates that idea you know the, the Scarlet Letter is about well the, the letter A the, the red letter yeah. A um, and this one plays with that and you can sort of see where it's going in terms of its playfulness so it's saying you know easy a, you know, of course, mm. all the different connotations that we would have with easy A, um, but also the academic connotation too. That's an easy A to get, mm. uh, or is Olive an easy A herself? You know, so there's there's uh, all these wonderful little connotations that's been playing around, and and the lovely irony that I think is actually inspired uh, from the film itself that the person that they branded as this you know um, immoral harlot is probably the most moral character of the entire you know the entire world and we see the same thing with Olaf you know she's branded as this you no know, sorry my dog's going crazy <laughs> angry um <laughs> they, they do not like you know people branded such you know things um but you can sort of see in this world you know, what I really love about the film and what I really love about Olaf's character is that she's such a wonderful character you know she's she's moral but not in a um sort of hypocritical or self-righteous way she's just genuinely quite a nice person so everything that she does um, that brands her as a bad person in the eyes you know gives her that reputation is actually done out of um, goodness for other people you know she uh, she first uh, is branded a, a bit of a type because she wants to help this you know uh, homosexual guy out by pretending to you know have sex with him and that actually what starts the entire you know chain rolling every time she's called into one of these things it's because she feels sorry or she feels sympathy for another character. So she, so she never does anything um, maliciously or, or, you know, for um, some sort of gain, but actually to, to help other people out. And so the irony of her helping other people out and then getting branded as this immoral tart, uh, I think is the essence of, of the actual story mm. itself. Because, you know, in you know, Scarlet Letter, again, we, we get this similar idea that she's protecting somebody by not saying something. Uh, and, and we're getting a uh, very similar idea, but in a very modern context. And I think that's where the film is actually really, really clever by looking at, well, what ideas from uh, The Scarlet Letter can be moved into this contemporary setting? And certainly from a contemporary setting, slut shaming is, you know, probably the, the, the epitome of what, you know, The Scarlet Letter actually does. You know, it, it moves very beautifully into our mm. contemporary world and makes it very, very relevant as well. Yeah. I think dirty skank was the term that they use the most often in the film. <laughs> and in fact, they um, they make the point here, they make the parallels with the Scarlet Letter extremely clear, just for anyone that's not following along yet, um, mm. at the point at which they start studying it in class um, and the teacher's asking them, um, so so, what do you, what do you think? Um, is she, um, does she deserve her punishment? You know, and one of the... Um, super duper Christian people <laughs> um, says basically she brought it on herself 
um, I think she's a dirty skank. They apply that word and then she looks pointedly at Olive and says, maybe you should wear the letter A. And so this, the, the film obviously draws a very clear parallel between um, this sense of adultery, which the teacher says is the worst crime a woman could commit at the time. He says, but he says um, it was a very different time. And the film is obviously saying, well, that's not true. Sure, it was very different because it's no longer adultery. That's the problem. It's sexual. It's sexual activity in general. So in many ways, the same thing applies. A woman is um, invisible except for her sexual activity, which is public property to judge, to condemn. Um, and she is meant to accept her punishment and her public scrutiny and judgment with humble silence. And that's very much what um, the, the, the book um, does in terms of setting up the virtue of its main character of Hester is that she can be strong and endure um, the, you know, the censure that she gets from society. She just keeps on going. But with Olive, um, you know, she's silent for a while because she's got vested interest in protecting the secret. But in what I like about what the film does is in the end, she's freed by being vocal, by speaking out, by turning um, what starts out as empowerment through this, um, you know, sexual um, censure. You know, she turns it into a form of power. And, and again, in another really nice reference to 10 Things I Hate About You, um, when she decides, the moment she decides well, fine, if they're thinking all of these things about me, I'm going to become that stereotype. That's exactly what Kat does. Everyone thinks she's a heinous bitch, so she becomes mm. one. And mm. they play the same, um, I don't give a damn about my reputation, they play that same song, which is, you know, used in 10 Things I Hate About You to signal that transformation. So she's very much getting her cat on there um, and just embracing the negative social stereotype that people are, are foisting upon her and using it to empower herself. But in the end... Um, she escapes all this. She basically finds her happy ending and her freedom by being vocal, by telling the truth and by speaking out. And we get that really modern sense here of, of using the video technology, using the internet, um, using people's desire, this voyeuristic desire to peer in on and control women's lives against them by saying, okay, look, everyone, I'm going to do this sort of sexy show online. And then she's actually telling her story. Uh, I think that's a really smart way to flip the tables I think on the idea that a woman should be silently suffering mm. and, and through that showing her virtue. Yeah I, I quite agree and I think it's just it, it beautifully demonstrates in this really simple really easy to understand way that I think will resonate with a lot of young people um, that a woman's social currency is her purity alleged purity whereas for a man it doesn't matter how much sex he's having that's a badge of honour. And that is done so beautifully by the fact that for all of these men who say that they've hooked up with Olive, they get, you know, social capital out of it, but she doesn't. So she's always the loser. And it's just such a beautiful exploration of those sexual double standards that you're right, Kirsten, when I was watching that, that scene in the, in the classroom where he says, well, that was a different time. I'm like, this whole movie is an explication of the fact that this is not a different time. Um, that we're exactly the same, that we think we're more modern, that we think we're more, um, you know, progressive, that we think we're more with it. But in fact, the same thing is happening. It's damaging to her reputation to have these relationships or alleged relationships, but it is, you know, if anything, it's social capital, it's, you know, bravado accrues to the men. You know, look at the way that um, she sort of, when she first has that, um, that first 
pretended encounter and um, he, he goes out of the room. He's like, yeah. And she sort of slinks out of the room and it's like, I better leave, you know. Yeah, um, everybody. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just such a, a beautiful, simple visual explication of exactly what it's like, all, all these sexual double standards and how they pop out in, in women and girls' life. I thought it was just so clever. Yeah, and I think it also shows uh, the way sexuality is viewed um, across the gender uh, as well in terms of, you know, different views of it. So that scene actually was a scene I wanted to raise as well <clears throat> uh, in the way that um, the, the, the gay character, Brendan, um, walks out of that room and all the males are like, you know, yeah, you did it, you know, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. well done, you know, you had sex, that was great, you know. And then she get, she walks out of there and the females are staring at her like, you slut, you tart, you know, this judgment that's placed upon her. The exact same scene, the exact, you know, mm. same people who are coming out of there. And we get this stark contrast between the way male sexuality is viewed as something mm. positive to be celebrated and then female sexuality is viewed as something shameful, you know, to, uh, to be put down. Um, and what's really interesting also is that it's the um, it's the same genders that are actually doing it, you know. So the yeah, they're reinforcing that, it. Yeah. yeah, they're reinforcing it. It's the females that are actually reinforcing that you slut, you know, you tart. How dare you do that? The kind of thing. And she's actually feeling quite shamed. And it's a really sad scene for me because she leaves that scene having done something actually, you know, quite positive for, for somebody, feeling really down about herself and really bad about herself, um, and feeling completely misunderstood. And I completely agree with, with Kirsten there. You know, it's the truth that ultimately sets her, her free there um, and gives her that kind of ultimate sense of power. Um, the, the, the lies that she makes throughout the entire film gives her a temporary type of power, but it's a, it's a borrowed power. It's, it's borrowing mm. from male sexuality power. It's not actual, you know, real power as such. You know, her own sense of empowerment is at the end where she says, you know, uh, I may sleep with him, you know, in five minutes time, in a you know, year's time when I get married, but you know what, it's none of your business. Like it's nobody's business, but my own. And for me, that's the most empowering message there. You know, whatever happens in the privacy of somebody's bedroom belongs in the privacy of somebody's bedroom. It's nobody else's business. It's nobody else's um, point to actually judge another person based on what they actually do. That is the real sense of power that she uh, ultimately captures for herself to say, look, when I choose to sleep with somebody, I will, and nobody else gets to say, gets to say about that. You, know, you don't get to judge me and you don't get to say whether it's a positive or a negative thing. I get to assess that for myself. And I think that's the most empowering message for me from the film. Um, and also to identify that kind of hypocrisy, uh, the way that female sexuality in particular is viewed. You know, I mean, I, I grew up watching a lot of um, shows you know, that have mentioned in the past, you know, like Golden Girls and Sex and the City, where my favorite characters are, you know, the, the ones who identify as, as the slut. Because for me, it's, it's the empowering, you know, nature of it. You know, I love Blanche and I love um, Kim Cattrall's character because, you know, they, they embrace their sexuality and they claim that power. And you get to see a sense of that with Olive, but the difference is that Olive is not that type of character. She's only playing that character very, very briefly. Uh, and she gets a, a, a sense of that power, but it's not who she is. And ultimately the real power then is her being who she is um, and actually then pushing back on the world to say, no, you, you don't get to tell me how I can control my body and my sexuality. Yeah, and I think that's done nicely when um, the way, even the way she dresses after she's like, okay, I've got this reputation, I'm just going to, you know, go football and just embrace it and turn it into a kind of source of empowerment. She dresses in this like, very stereotypical, um, very stereotypically kind of sexy way. You know, she's got the, the hair and the, um, the corsets and all of this, the lingerie, but it's not, 
it doesn't read as authentic. And later on in the, the big kind of romantic scene um, where she, you know, tells her story and then, you know, um, the, the guy she truly loves turns up um, and, you know, has the boombox. She's just, um, you know, casually, she's just in, a, in jeans and a tank top. Um, I think it does a really good um, job of playing up the cliches associated with female sexuality, the way in which... Um, a female sexuality is caught up with all of this kind of like big hair kind of sexy lingerie kind of ideas about you know what is what is sexy and what isn't and um i think that the, the movie does a good job of really just undermining those really conventional cliched ways of of understanding sexuality and gets to a kind of really much more authentic sexuality that is as you say private nobody's business and not a source of shame but just something healthy and natural I think it's really clever in the way that it unpacks those things. Sorry, Kirsten, I, I think I interrupted you. No, it's um, I agree. I, I think um, for me, there's a few interesting things to unpack with the way it treats sexuality. Um, mm. From what one thing a lot of uh, both of you were saying um, has a lot to do with the word reputation, which is used a lot in the film. Mm. So um, the, the boys are concerned about their reputation, but they mean this in a positive way. They want a record of having lots of sex with women, um, you know, because that's a good reputation for a boy to have. Um, so uh, Brandon, our lovely gay character, wants a reputation of having slept with at least one woman and ideally been good at it <laughs> um, or ideally shown her a good time, taken that dominant role um, because that reputation will see him through high school with the other boys who won't beat him up anymore for being gay. So it's addressing that homophobia there and also the misogyny that, in, that involves, you know, um, a male's reputation being on his sexual domination of women. The word reputation um, obviously applies in a different way to women because it's, you know, a lot of, a lot of people say to Olive, you're getting a reputation. Um, and they mean you're getting a bad reputation. So a man has a good reputation according to, you know, according to a woman is so um, I think the film is really interesting in the way that it kind of highlights that difference of power in terms of how sex is represented for men and women and what it means for them. Um, basically, for men, um, the power comes from sex itself, the sexual act, I, like ideally with women, not men. So if these, um, you know, boys have sex with girls, that's where their power comes from. For women, the power comes from being sexy, i.e. desirable to men, but not from having had sex with them. So the second, so they want to be sexy, but the second they actually have sex, they lose that power because I guess in the way the cultural sort of society sets it up, that power transfers to the man that bedded her. So it just, I think that the film, um, and, and this plays into how she dresses, like you were mentioning, Steph, um, you know, she's just, she's got all these outfits on and she's really embracing that stereotype of the sexy woman, the, the bombshell, you know, but um, I think it's just, it's highlighting, yeah, that, that power differential between who gets to comment on, on people, on what they do with their bodies, on, on what kind of sex happens. But I think one problem it's in a way it's interesting um the fact that olive is a virgin throughout the film and that she is lying basically about her sexual exploits is uh, on the one hand it, it highlights um how rumors spread it highlights how unjustified anyone's judgment of women 
um, especially based on rumours and gossip. It highlights how ridiculous that whole system is. But at the same time, I wonder if the fact that she's a virgin allows the audience to feel a little more sympathetic to her because she's not really one of those girls. She says, I'm not that kind of girl. But what is that kind of girl? Isn't that exactly what the film is meant to be critiquing? That kind of girl, meaning a girl who dares to actually do something she wants to with her body, actually have enjoyable sex with someone? What's mm. wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, I actually think, yeah, that, that was something I noticed again last night watching it over, that um, it, it ultimately affirms that she's a good girl. Yeah, because she hasn't had sex exactly, yet. Exactly, exactly. She has that message at the end that she, you know, she might she might be about to have sex. She might do it one day and it's nobody's business. They get there in the end, you know, they do. Yeah, say, they do get there. But I think it, yeah, I think yeah. It, is, it is slightly problematic that the what's underlying all of this is, well, it's a lie. None of this has actually happened. She's, you know, it's it's all just a pretense. She's actually being very virginal and pure and all of that throughout it. So it does allow for an interpretation um, that is, you know, those kind, if she was really that kind of girl, if she was really sleeping with all these men, then, then she would be a dirty skank, you know? Yeah, I think so the audience is kind of let off the hook a bit. It's like, we'll have this little intellectual exercise about in mm. theory, it's okay for women to sleep with people, but don't worry, you don't actually have to empathise with a woman who slept with lots of people because she didn't really. <laughs> yeah, she did, exactly. And so it would be totally different if she did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy, I, you, were, you were talking about me too in this context. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting point and I can definitely uh, understand that that reading of it for me. I guess I, I never saw it that in that context, mainly because I always saw Olive as being the, the middle ground between two extreme uh, figures, you know, her best friend, Rhiannon, who I guess would embody that kind of sexualized female figure because she's the experienced woman here and, you know, her... Um, her moniker is, what was it, Big Tits or something like that, BT, I think they said, you know, so, and she's like, Big Tits, great, you know, I love that, you know, that's that's my defined feature. Uh, and, and the other one is the, um, I've forgotten her name now, the, uh, the Christian girl played by Amanda Vines. Um, you know, and she's this, meant to be this virgin, innocent, holier than thou, you know, Marianne, that's her name, <laughs> um, uh, character who's the complete opposite of, of Rhiannon. And, and for me, Oliver was sort of in between that as, kind of a more contemporary woman who chooses what she does with her body. If she wants to sleep with somebody, she will. I mean, for me, I never got the sense that um, <clears throat> Olive wanted to remain a virgin for some pure idea. It was more that, you know, she just wasn't, she didn't want to. And we kind of see that in that first scene, and you know, when she's 13 and she's um, <clears throat> locked in the room with her, her crush, Todd, and she wants to kiss him. She really wants to kiss him at that stage, but he's not ready. And he's too shy to, you know, and he's too ashamed of himself that, that he's so scared that he do, doesn't want to do something. She's actually in full possession of her sexuality at that stage where she's like, you know, I'm ready for my first kiss, you know, and, and I want my first kiss to be with, with Todd. And he's like, oh, but I'm, I'm not ready. And the interesting thing is that, you know, afterwards, the person to regret that scene is the male where he's there saying, well, I kind of wish that, you know, you had been my first rather than my pretend first because, you know, my, my real first end up being quite actually... <laughs> very very forgettable so i think you know it, it's it's a scene for me that shows that olive is somebody who's very sure about her sexuality and you know very confident in where she goes with it so i never approached her i guess from that perspective of that the audience can relate to her more because or, or was able to forgive her more because she's a, a virgin but then again that could be me coming from my own perspective where i actually do like 
uh, female characters who are much more tarty in nature because I just think they're much more interesting and they're oh, just much more well-rounded. <laughs> and I just, you know, it's, there's something about that character that is so much more powerful for me. So whether she's a real tart or a fake tart, I sympathize with her regardless because I just think, you know, good for you to claim your sexuality in, in that way, you know, because you want to, not because people are forcing it on you. Um, and, and I think you know, that's a really interesting thing here because she enjoys that power when she, it, it's what she wants, but she stops enjoying that power when, you know, it's not what she wants anymore. This is not the reputation or this is not the way she wants people to perceive her. Uh, and it's really interesting then that the person who really understands her is the first person that in where she, she lied for mm-hmm. is, you know, I, I know that you're not that type of person because, you know, when we were 13, you were, you know, you did this and that showed me that the type of person that you are. So I don't care what people are saying about you. I know the type of person you are and I know. You know and, and so, you know, that, that's a much more uh, positive message, I think, to, to come out of that scene. Well, it's complicated, isn't it? Sorry, Kirsten, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, I think it's a good point um, that it becomes a problem for her when she's no longer in control of the narrative. She's no longer mm-hmm. in control of her self-image and that is the problem. And that, again, that's an indictment of society, mm-hmm. the way that, um, you know, women aren't able to control their sexual narrative. And that's what the whole um, hideous genre that is revenge porn happens Mm. because you know that doesn't really happen for men in the same way it happens for women because people don't care about men having sex the same way they care about women having sex yeah Um, and if anything it's it's like a badge of honor for men but i find Mm. it interesting though that the film does explicitly draw the line between kissing which is okay and actual sex so again this is pointing towards how times have changed i think from um you know the scarlet letter from those puritan um, times um, because what do they actually say? Olive says when people thought I'd kissed someone, they didn't really care. But when they thought I'd slept with someone, so there's the difference that um, kissing that's okay because that's part of women being sexy, so they can use that. But the second they want to actually have sex, that's a problem. And I think yeah. that's sort of where the the film's nuances, but also potentially some of its problems, come to light because as well, her friend, her best friend. Um, Rhiannon with with the big tits, <laughs> you know, she's she's still a virgin. Uh, like Olive makes a point of saying you're a virgin just because you know she 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 did one kind of semi sexual act at one time and thinks she knows everything, but it's all an act, just like Olive. For her, it's an act. So she's embodying the image of the sexy, empowered, and sexually empowered woman, but only because she hasn't actually done it. Yeah, I think um, it, it is quite complex because I was just thinking about her mother as well. And, you know, when she tells her mother at the end all of, all of um, what's been going on, her mother's like, well, you know, I slept with everyone actually in reality. Like, I was, I, was, I, was, I, was so, I was so flexible. I could do this thing with my legs. I could get them right back. Um, and so she, she just takes complete ownership of that. And she's like, well, so this, I had a terrible reputation like you, but unlike you, it was the truth. And she just sort of leans in and really claims that, which I found um, quite lovely. I love her parents. They're just yeah. absolutely adorable. But, but I think that also highlights the difference between, I guess, an immature form of sexuality and a mature form yeah. of sexuality. You know, a mature woman is able to own up to her sexuality and say, look, I slept with a whole bunch of people when I was younger um, and that's fine. You know, that's who I am. Yeah. Now, you know? I mean, even the father jokingly saying, you know, you know, and it's no big deal. You know, I was gay once. We all go through it. You know, it's this strange. I mean, the, the parents have to say, must win the parent of the year. I know. Because they are just so. It's such a fantasy. 
you know, parents, you know, even down to uh, uh, adopting a black kid and saying, you know, yeah. who told you that you were adopting? <laughs> we, we won't get to tell you until much later. Yeah, so they're, they're these well, all the moment where he looks at the kid and says, so where do you actually come from? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so, so they're really wonderful parents. And I think they, they represent the potential <clears throat> and in a way the, the, the truth of what happens outside of that high school world. High yeah. school world is like this yeah. strange microcosm that's locked in a traditional past. And when you finally get it, and, and Olive says the same thing to, to Brendan too, you know, so you just have to last until you finish high school. And then afterwards yeah. you can be whoever you want to be. It's just, <clears throat> and <clears throat> that understanding that high school life is so <clears throat> restrictive in terms conservative. of conservative and conservative in the way it views yeah. sexuality and gender and power and all that stuff. Um, and I wonder whether, whether that's another marker of its age. Um, it, it, it kind of is and kind of isn't. I mean, it's, it's a shame that, you know, again, I've mentioned this in another podcast already, but it's a shame that we don't get to, to talk about Mean Girls because that's another one that kind of critiques that lovely uh, microcosm that is high school yeah. world. It's so different. It's an adaptation of a, of a um, parenting manual, isn't it? Yes, it is an adaptation. That's, <laughs> it, that's quite... It's, it's a very adaptation and maybe we should, you know. Um, but, yeah, you know... Like, we'll find a way. We'll, we'll, we'll try to find a way. Um, but yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, so many of these teams and one of the things um, so these teams film have in common is this understanding that high school is a very strange world. It almost doesn't have that much to do with reality. It does to a certain extent because it heightens reality. It heightens mm. what is you know meant to be the, the real world. So, yes, there are problems with the way female sexuality and sexuality in general is viewed in the real world. But when you put that into the high school environment, it intensifies it you know, by a hundred times and every little action you do is then judged against you in, in such a harsh way that in the real world, it wouldn't be as such. So Olive's parents can be this free liberating example <clears throat> that Olive will eventually, you know, get to, but at this stage she has to in a way survive high school. And I think she survives it so much better than all the other characters because of her wit and her intelligence and her, her own sense of uh, inner power as well. I think, you know, so that, that for me is what makes the film actually, you know, quite a, a good film to, to watch. Yeah, she's got great role models. Like her, her mm. parents are just so beautiful in the way that they model that, um, you know, those, those beautiful values of basically do what you want. It's your body. Just be sensible about it. Um, you know, think of the ramifications, just be aware of the context and just do what you want. But um, they also have the... Um, I don't know, the privilege or the safety of a happy marriage. There yeah. is an adult who doesn't do the right thing, um, who, but she's involved in the school system. So the guidance counsellor who starts out being great, her first um, session, her first interview with Olive is basically, you know what, I'm not here to judge you, take a bunch of condoms, just do what you like. There's nothing wrong with it. But then later on, obviously, she's slept with a student who they make a point of saying it's okay, he's 21. Yes. <laughs> Um, but it's just she, very dumb. <laughs> she's she's married, so she's the real like. This is where yeah. the comes back in. So she's the yeah. real adulterer in this situation. Again, it's a woman, um, but it's not known to everyone because Olive takes the blame. And then the guidance counselor refuses to come out and actually tell the truth, even to let Olive off the hook. Mm. Um, takes Olive, but she just says basically, we should all live with our guilt and our shame. And she's embodying that. Mm. women's silent suffrage under social um you know oppression and that mm. it's just horrible and it's and it's taking other women down like olive it's taking everybody down it's hurting all these women so i think even the adults that are involved in this sort of school system and not exactly completely outside it um even they succumb to to this judgment and the pressures you know that that affect women's sexuality 
Another thing the film does really well without putting being too, um, I don't know, strident about it is its critique of religion <laughs> and the and the, the cult of um, purity that has become wrapped up in certain types of American evangelicalism. Um, obviously, you know, you just, you can see it coming. You know that there's going to be some kind of sex scandal within that group of religious teenagers. Um, but the way it's, it's handled um, is so clever. And the way that, um, you know, it, it just gets little digs, um, I suppose, uh, little digs throughout the, the film about, you know, the hypocrisy of the Christian characters, you know, we, Marianne saying, you know, Jesus says to love the, the, the whores and the homosexuals, but it's so hard. Um, or, they or keep you get, doing it. <laughs> I know, they keep doing it all the time. Um, One of my the, when she says um, that there's a higher power that will judge you for your indecency and Olive says, Tom Cruise. <laughs> but even like the idea that it's so shameful to get a divorce, you know, yeah. that, that is such a clever little comment that, you know, in this, the problem is that everyone will know that they got a divorce, not the fact that they've been in this unhappy marriage and that, you know, a family is, is breaking up. It's everyone will know that X got a divorce and then it won't reflect well on me. It's all about reputation. It's all about illusion. It's all about surface. There is no depth. There's no sincerity. Um, it's just all bullshit, really. Um is, is such a clever comment and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't go in and, and make a comment about, you know, it doesn't wear its critique really heavily. It just threads it through so you can see that this, um, this really con conservative set of ultra-Christians are actually the real problem here. Yeah, I mean, one of my favourite scenes in, in the film is, um, you know, when Oliver's developing that reputation, um, one of the rumours is that one of the Christian guys paid her a hundred dollars uh, to say that she took off her clothes, but he refused to look. You're kind of like, okay, so the hypocrisy is, you know, he wants to be seen yeah. as desired by Olive, but he still wants to be, you know, still act as, you know, puritanical. And, you know, and it's a, a different kind of social capital, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And I just thought, you know, <laughs> the, the kind of lovely <laughs> hypocrisy in that scene is just you know, beautiful. But one of the things that I have to admit, it's a little bit of a sidetrack, but um, I kind of realized my age when I watched this film because I realized I had no idea what some of those sexual terminology they were using was all about. And I even tried Googling it and I still have no idea. Don't Google those things. Uh, I, well, I looked it up and I still have no idea, you know, like a lemon squeeze, which is, you know, what, what exactly is a lemon squeeze? I have you know, no it's, idea. Like a, it's like a backward <laughs> melon bag. And I was like, what the hell's a melon bag? Oh, <laughs> and if you ever want any sort of strange, time warp that happens in internet search, try Googling lemon squeeze. Because no, it just gives you the <laughs> definition for, uh, for melon bag. And when you try to Google melon bag, it just puts you back to lemon squeeze. So it's this strange loop that just goes round and round, almost as if nobody can actually identify what it means. So I'm almost tempted to think that it's something that's created by the show itself or by the film itself, I should say. Um, because it, it's so bizarre that I thought, wait, I, I don't really, like, am I just really old and have no idea what some of these terminology mean? Um, or is it something that is created by the show to show the kind of language um, that, you know, sort of teenagers develop? You know, they, they develop a very unusual language of their own. They, their well, own that's language. like you, what you were saying. It's its, it's, it's, it's own enclosed world. You know, mm. they have their own language. They have their own um, roles. They have their own kind of um, rules in that world that are sort of specific to that world. It's also a slight stereotype that the person who knows all of the detailed terminology is the gay man. Yeah. Um, so the, the hypersexual um, gay man, that's a bit of, that's a little bit of a stereotype, but I mean, 
I guess they um, they had some fun with that one. And it's good that they're sending people into the fruitless internet searches. Fruitless as another pun on the one of you. <laughs> can we also talk about the, the, the lovely um, intertextual reference to um, Huckleberry Finn? With, <laughs> because, you know, in a way it does play with that uh, sometimes unusually homoerotic and problematic aspect of Huckleberry, you know, uh, Finn as well. And, uh, it's so it, irreverent to classic literature. I love it. Yeah, like there's mm. so many references to classical literature and to you know um, uh, 80s romantic comedies. It's almost mm. a film that's built entirely on intertextual references. Yeah, you get those references, you get so much more out of the film. But if you don't get those references, you still get you know a, a really interesting uh, mm. the gist of the film and a lot of the jokes as well. So and, and I think that's what makes a good intertextual reference that it doesn't rely on all those different references for you to actually understand the film. But if you do, it enriches your experience um, of the film itself, you know, even to the point that obviously, you know, I need to have a um, musical number at the end for no specific reason yeah. other than <laughs> to just have a musical number, you know, it's so um, yeah. self-referential in, in that nature, but it's, it's a clever self-referential um, thing. And it makes you it also wonder if some of the casting is self-referential too. I mean, you've got Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm as, McDowell as the principal. I mean, come on. Principal, yeah. Orange. <laughs> yeah. So he's, you know, known for being, the main character in Clockwork Orange. I mean, even somebody like um, like Lisa Kudrow, who is who's yes. got this, you know, like Phoebe from Friends kind of baggage with her. And um, Amanda Bynes. Kind of Daffy. Yeah. Amanda, Amanda Bynes. Bynes the man that we, we exactly, which we just watched. Um, yeah, I just think that some of the the, um, the casting is is clever and, yeah, it, it made me think that this is done on purpose. And, of course, like Patricia Clarkson and Stanley Tucci, who are her parents, are like, the most beloved kind of actors on the internet um, of their kind of generation. And I just got the feeling that somebody was like, who would be the ultimate parents, Patricia Clarkson and Stanley Tucci? Yeah. Hmm. Let's, let's cast them. And I'm like, it's perfect. Of course it is because they're perfect. You know? Um, so I get the feeling that there's this kind of cheeky humor that runs through even the casting choices um, of the film, which makes it just all, all more smart. And, and even like Fred Armisen is like the weird pastor. I think was great. If you like um, Fred Armisen's work on Saturday Night Live and other equally weird roles. Well, I mean, I think the film itself is almost like a celebration of quirkiness. It seems to say that, you know, if, if you're strange, unusual, quirky, you're the, you're the type that in a way will survive much better in, in the real world. I mean, uh, even the, the hero, I suppose, the, or the love interest, Todd, is really quirky himself. I mean, I, I'd say I, I laugh. Uh, out loud at the scene where you know he starts off as blue devil and they did the whole thing and he becomes the woodchuck, woodchuck <laughs> he yeah. does that ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> i just thought that was one of the funniest strangest little things but those are the sort of things that we love about characters we we don't like um boring you know straightforward character we kind of like characters that are unique in their own ways and each one of the characters that we asked to identify with have some sort of um, quirkiness about them, you know, some sort of unusualness, strangeness, if you will, that makes them individual. Uh, and I think it's a film that really celebrates individuality. And I love that aspect of it. And the other thing that I really love, which uh, conforms more to my ideas of how I like my life to be led, is the kind of humour that uh, a lot of these characters have. They seem to understand that if you take life too seriously, 
things will you know, turn out to be like, I suppose, the Christian people who, you know, just <laughs> Amanda Bynes pretending to cry at, you know, how you know, sad she is that, you know, Olive's a slut, you know, that, that kind <laughs> of strange seriousness. But if you take things with kind of you know, a little pinch of humour and even uh, Patricia Clarkson's character says to, to Olive, you know, you will deal with it with the same kind of incontrovertible humour, you know, that, that you've always dealt with things. Um, and that, in a way, is kind of the key to, to get past high school and to get, you know, through life that we can't take things too seriously all the time. Sometimes we do need a little bit of lightness. And I mm. think that's a, a really positive message to, to give to teenagers too, that, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world that these things happen to you in high school. You will get past it and things will get so much better afterwards. Just, you know, take things a little bit more lightly. Don't, don't take it so seriously. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I do think that perhaps high school's changed in, in some respects because, you know, we were talking about the, the gay kid I'm like, I don't know whether it's so different to be gay in high school anymore. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I just, I think that there has been some progress um, in that regard. I think that, you know, that we have a, a bit more of a complex, I don't know, conversation about gay kids, trans kids, et cetera. Or well, I hope so anyway. Maybe that's just me looking on the optimistic side. But I agree that it, it definitely... Um, Steph, optimistic? Has the world gone I know. crazy? No, I know. I, I can be optimistic. I'm always optimistic. Um, but I just think that, that perhaps that might be a little bit, bit dated. I was also a bit worried about um, the scene where um, the overweight kid says that he's fat and disgusting and um, Olive takes pity on him. I mean, I get what they're trying to do there when, you know, she's, she's got a kind of um, compassion for him. Um, but just the way that he says that about himself just kind of made me feel a bit anxious in terms of teenagers watching that. Um, sorry? Kirsten? Really hard to represent um, high school bullying without in yeah. some way reaffirming it. Yeah, know? exactly, yeah. But, but I think the fact that, you know, they address... Although uh, it is a little bit problematic because he is also the character that is the first one to suggest that he could just do it without her consent. Yeah, exactly. Permission. And so he is a bit of the kind of, um, you know, repulsive. Yeah. In, in not in, it has nothing to do with phys his physicality. It's just what he says. Yeah, his assumption that because she's got a reputation, then whatever anyone says will be taken as truth, which yeah. it is, really. Yeah. Um, exactly. So he ends up being right, but in this, in this horrible way. Um, I think we're running out of time. So any final thoughts, any points that we haven't gone over about Easy A? Can I give you a couple of my favourite lines? Sure. I love a, a good quote, as you know, Kirsten. I love when Olive um, says to Brandon, what is it with you gays? Are you really that repulsed by lady parts? What do you think I have down there? A gnome? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's a really good line. As well, <laughs> speaking of her quirky nature, when she's, she's listing all the places that she could be given a $100 gift card to, and she says, actually, no, make it Office Max. I have my eye on a label. Make <laughs> It's just so lovely. She's just, I agree with Jimmy's earlier point. It's the quirkiness. And this is what the 2000s to 2010s really started doing. Remember, this is post the OC. Yeah. Um, with Cohen and post um, Gossip Girl, who is basically Seth Cohen rebooted, which is played by the same actor who yeah. plays interest in this film. Yeah. Um, so we're really going for this kind of quirky is cool. Intelligent is cool. Um, so I, I like, uh, you know, to sum up, I think I really like that aspect of the film the most. It's level of um, assumed intelligence in the audience and the way it doesn't pander to the kind of stereotypes that just don't fly anymore. Um, mm -hmm. You know, by the time it was made. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's got a wit, it's got a humour, it's got a warmness, it's got a quirk to it. I just love, I mean, Olive is like one of those fantastic characters that always seems to know the right thing to say (laughs) and the the funniest way to say it. Well, here's Melody Buff Dick. (laughs) (laughs) Another one of my favourites. The way she says it too, it's just, I love Emma Stone in this, she's great. Jimmy, any final thoughts on Easy A? Uh, yep. So one of the things I really cherish in films uh, when they do things that really doesn't actually contribute anything significant to the actual overall plot, but builds on the world so beautifully. So yeah. one of the film, one of my favourite scenes in the film, uh, and it's the scene that made me think, okay, maybe I'm watching something a little bit more special now. Is the scene that will probably drive a lot of people crazy because it's uh, an earworm because it drove Kirsten crazy, which is the. Oh. Sunshine. Sunshine. <laughs> so I sent an email out with the title Pocket Full of Sunshine and, you know, two hours later, Kirsten says, that song's been stuck in my head for the entire day now. And the reason it gets stuck that's in my head... That's the point. <laughs> yeah, that's the point, you know. And I think a scene that captures those kind of everyday moments of our lives, you know, I can identify with that idea of being, you know, hating a song initially and then somehow getting it stuck in your head uh, and it drives you crazy for the entire weekend. You're in the shower, you're singing it and you know, everywhere. <laughs> and then she's got it as a ringtone. <laughs> yeah, and then she, yeah, she turns into a ringtone. You know, so of course that's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to a lot of people as well. And I just love that kind of detail that's been added you know, to a film to yeah. that world. So those little things, I think, really, really make um, that world. Um, and just that kind of montage of, you know, pocket full of sunshine uh, is something that's very, very special about um that word i think that's it's an ongoing joke too it's something that you know keeps going on throughout and you know so um the lie begins with her actually quoting pocket full of sunshine you know <laughs> i got a, a love that i know that's all mine <laughs> so she's actually you know making references to to the song uh, as well as you know, to, to everything else so i think those little moments are what's kind of worth watching the film for so you, yeah, yeah you do get the overall story but every now and then you get these little you know nuggets of just gems throughout and and I love that about the film and that's how you sort of create characters that feel like they have a life outside the narrative you know you want the characters to feel like that they could be living breathing humans that don't just come into a story and then leave and so many films I feel have those characters that you feel like they've they've made a walk-on role they've done what they needed to do but they have no existence beyond that um, which, of course, they don't, but you want to create a, that feeling that they're, they're actual humans. And you get that in this film with all of those little things, like even Rhiannon's parents. I know, I was just um, about to say. Yeah, the hippies, you know, that hand her a huge bong and, you know, like they didn't have to have that scene. And, yes, it's funny, but it's also not a throwaway thing. It just gives a kind of texture to the world that they live in and also a kind of specificity in California. Hmm. um as well you know that kind of hippie um you know outdoor kind of lifestyle i just found that it was a really well-rounded world yeah. i mean and, and even you know little um throwbacks like uh when brendan comes to you know visit and um the, the mother says you know um you, you've got a male visitor and he said something <laughs> about marriage and you know she comes down <laughs> pretending to be this southern pose like oh mama has it really happened you know <laughs> It's kind of that strangeness about that world, but at the same time, it's so endearing, so lovable, yeah. and you instantly connect with these characters and you instantly love them straight away because they they show such cleverness of uh, and such quirkiness as well. And I think you know that's that's the essence of what makes a, a great film. Or even her father saying, "Well, I don't have to worry about you having sex because your boyfriend's homosexual." <laughs> <laughs> After Brandon comes home, <laughs> oh, it's such a delightful movie. Um, I think that's all we have time for today. 
So thank you to Jimmy and thank you to Kirsten for coming and talking about our latest in our teen adaptation series. Uh, we will work on a way uh, on how to justify talking about Mean Girls. I agree, there is a book, so I think that's close enough. <laughs> um, if you've got any comments or questions for us, you can drop us a line at fromthelighthouse.org or um, tweet at us at MQ English. Um, you can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you've got a chance. Um, we'll see you again in two weeks. Bye.